0: Welcome to Destiny. Now here's your host, Cliff Dunning.
1: Oh my God, what a week. What a week we have had here on planet Earth. And welcome to it. Hey, hope you're doing well. This is uh, Cliff. You know, uh, in the medieval period it would be, the queen is dead, long live the king. And I never thought she would pass. I didn't think uh, Elizabeth would, would uh, transition. She just seemed like such a hearty gal that, I mean, what is she? She passed at 96. And um, I don't know. I never thought much of the Royals, but uh, it was something about her I was very compelled about. And her uh, personality and her charm and her, her position as really one of the last of the modern royals uh, to be acknowledged around the world everybody after her i mean her son charles who's the king i i just never felt much for any of them <laughs> but her maybe it's just because she she was so present uh, i'm not sure if it's her pr that made her present or just her her charisma but she has passed now in a whole uh Generation, uh, multiple generations of people will, you know, be thinking about her and uh, wondering what's going to happen to the monarchy in England. It's funny. I'm going to be in England uh, November from the 18th to the 26th, and I have not been to Buckingham Palace, and I think I'm going to m- make a, uh, a venture over there. Of course, you can't visit inside, but you can see the outside. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm in England to see a number of uh, exhibitions that are available, meet with some friends. I'm going to be doing a small talk, a private talk. Unfortunately, I wish we could uh, expand it. I'm going to be there just a few days, so it's it's going to be in and out. I, many of you uh, have reached out and offered to meet with me and uh, go to a pub, have a beer, sit and talk. I really. Want to thank you. Uh, I I just don't, unfortunately, have the time because everything is going to be one, two, three, one, (laughs) two, three, one, two, three, in and out, in and out. I'll probably be in the car most of the time uh, as I travel to Stonehenge, Avebury, and a few other suggested places. This is kind of a research tour uh, combined with some business, combined with a little bit of vacation, a little bit of uh, downtime. That I can use. And I will definitely be reporting back to you uh, via Facebook, Instagram, or any other social media that I can get my hands on. There are a number of very, very uh, well known Egyptian artifacts that are currently on display in the British Museum. And the and the the Brits are getting a little bit of uh, of guff from the Egyptian government, so most notably because of the different pieces that have been unveiled uh, apparently that they didn't know about. We're talking about the Egyptian uh, antiquities department, most notably the Rosetta Stone. Now, the Rosetta Stone has been in the uh, British Museum for Jesus over. I think it's been there since it was found a few hundred years ago. But, you know, when you go to France and the Louvre, they have entire uh, Egyptian temples, including the Hathor ceiling, the famous uh, astrological ceiling. How in the hell they got that, uh, is anyone's guess. It's a multi-ton piece of stone that was extracted. And this is a time, during the time of Napoleon, Napoleon's scientists. Uh, I don't think they called them anthropologists back then. Uh, Their specialties weren't that fine. They extracted huge portions of that temple, Hathor Temple. The English have done the same thing. And you know what? uh, The the Americans, we have had the same issues. Now, if you go to the the uh, the, uh, Metropolitan Museum in New York, there's huge numbers of artifacts that probably should be returned. There's a complete temple that has been recreated, that was brought over in the 1920s. There are fabulous sculptures of uh, Nefertiti, of uh, her consorts, her kids, that are just classics. And they've been, uh, the Egyptians have asked for those to be returned as well. So I don't know the politics behind it. I I think it's a a bit of a problem. But, you know, uh, I don't know how it's resolved, if there's money exchanged or... To keep the goodwill in place that they return these artifacts, I think they should be returned, especially that Hathor temple ceiling. That is, my God, (laughs) it's really amazing to see that in Paris, uh, as well as many, many, many other artifacts that uh, I'm sure the Egyptians would like to get back. So, well, maybe it'll happen. This uh, fabulous multi-billion dollar Grand Egyptian Museum that it was has been delayed for many years. Hopefully this coming winter, 2022, it will be unveiled. It'll be officially open. So I'm crossing my fingers. I'll tell you why. Our uh, May 2023 tour, which is uh, the 2nd through the 14th of May next year, hopefully we'll get a, uh, a full day at the new museum because from the looks of it, from what everyone tells me, it is simply the greatest Egyptian museum in the world. And uh, there's lots of reasons to be excited about it. And <laughs> we had have to cross our fingers that it's going to be open uh, later this year or early, early next year. But a queen has had a very long reign and uh, a memorable reign. And she will always be remembered. And uh, she has a special place in my heart. And uh, hopefully Charles can uh, pull his weight and do a good job. Let's cross our fingers that he is uh, in uh, going to be good in good shape. This week we're looking at a, a new author who's a, written a book called Dream Times and Thought Forms. His name is Richard Grossinger. He is the former publisher of North Atlantic Books, which was a private or a smaller publishing house, but he published a number of wonderful authors, very insightful. And today we're going to talk about not only his new book, but also some of the people he published, because he relates to their work, uh, specifically Richard Hoagland, The Monuments of Mars. Uh, But, you know, our talk today revolves around connecting with ETs, the consciousness behind ETs, why we haven't had more uh, direct contact if they're contacting people individually or if you follow the work of uh, Terrence McKenna or his brother Dennis McKenna, connecting with ET consciousness through plant medicines and specifically mushrooms. Apparently, according to uh, McKenna, Mushrooms dial us into other dimensional consciousnesses in a way that not only can we remember, but he believes, and we're going to hear from him shortly here, that this is a way to start communicating on a fairly regular basis. Now, I haven't done mushrooms in many, many years. Uh, I think I was in college last time I did mushrooms. And you have to be careful how much you take. But... Uh, these plant medicines are really opening the door for a lot of exploration. Now, we've had Graham Hancock on the program talking about his journeys with ayahuasca, and he as as well as many other people, believe that ayahuasca opens portals, opens dimensional travel, and allows other more higher levels perhaps of consciousness to pierce the veil of our reality, and to connect with other people. I'm hoping that we have a, an author. Well, I should say this. We've already booked and confirmed Dr. Rick Strassman, who's written a new book on plant medicines and how to connect with other consciousness. That's, that's going to be later in the year. Well, actually, the year's coming to a close. We're already in September. So this is going to happen, I'm guessing... I think it's going to be in 30 days. Uh, He has uh, gratefully agreed to come back and and speak with me on this new book. And we're going to talk to him about the importance and possible ramifications of using plant medicines in a specific setting to reach out, to connect with uh, other consciousnesses. And I actually uh, perhaps have those consciousnesses identify themselves as coming from other planetary systems, uh, other dimensions, so forth and so on. So, this is a, a fascinating topic because this might be going on right now, rather than expecting these uh, UFOs or UAPs to land and people and the beings to come out, shake our hand and go, "Hey, we're here. Welcome to the Federation of Planets. Uh, welcome to planet systems, whatever." This may be what's going on, is that there's a large population that is being subtly persuaded to be more open-minded, not to be fearful of off-world brethren, and uh, this is what what we may be seeing, is a uh, a communication on a conscious level. And we haven't talked about that. Uh, McKenna has talked about it for decades, and so we don't know. We don't know. Here is a short excerpt from Terence McKenna on mushrooms and how they dial us into higher, I guess you can just call them higher frequencies of consciousness and interacting with other world beings. Let's have a quick listen.
2: If we're seriously interested in this question of extraterrestrial penetration of the human world on two grounds immediately the mushroom bears looking at first argument entirely a physical argument psilocybin is for phosphoryloxy NN dimethyltryptamine what this means is is that there is a phosphorus group substituted at the four position of the molecule now, here's the headline, folks. This is the only four phosphorylated indole on this planet. On this planet. Now, if you were searching for extraterrestrial thumbprints on the biology of Earth, you would look for molecules that are unique that cannot, don't have near-relatives spread through other life forms. In psilocybin, we have a perfect example of this. It is the only 4-phosphorylated indole known to occur in nature. Nature doesn't work like that, folks. Nature builds always on what has previously been accomplished. So this is a red flag... Saying at the molecular level, this thing looks like an alien artifact at the molecular level. What troubles me about the, Uf- the current state of UFO modeling is how incredibly pedestrian the alien is assumed to be. I mean, their little gray suits, their charmingly slanted eyes, their cheerful interest in our reproductive capacity. I mean, I think that the alien will be so alien that your jaw will hang in the air and expecting to meet An anthropoid-like alien with an interest in your reproductive machinery and gross industrial capacity is as culture-bound a concept as searching NGC 321 for a good Italian restaurant. It's absurd on the face of it. Let us for a moment hypothesize aliens. If we are in fact being penetrated by a non-human intelligence that presumably somehow perhaps not physically but perhaps physically can cross from star to star then we are dealing with something vastly more sophisticated than ourselves that's just given at the get-go well if it's vastly more advanced than we are then DNA sequencing, uh, complete understanding of the molecular genesis of thought, so forth and so on, would be no problem for that level of technical sophistication. The species that holds that technology can design itself. It is not subject to the tyranny of whatever form it inherits from the evolutionary processes of its home planet. Even we in our primitive state are on the brink of being able to design ourselves uh, through genetic manipulation. Therefore, look at stropharia tubensis, the psychedelic mushroom. Spores are the most Uh, electron-dense organic material known.
1: I'm going to post a a video of McKenna talking about the use of mushrooms, how to use them properly to expand consciousness. You can see that on the Facebook page. Go to Facebook Earth Ancients. It'll be on group or international page. Or the earthancients.com. Go to Facebook feed. All right, my guest today is Richard Grossinger, former publisher of North Atlantic Books. And this book we're talking about today is Dream Times and Thought Forms Cosmogenesis from the Big Bang to Octopus and Crow Intelligence to UFOs. This book just came out and it was fun connecting with him.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?
1: We have best-selling authors, we have uh, well-known uh, research investigators, but it's rare that we have a publisher on the program who actually is an author himself. R- Richard uh, Grossinger is uh, w- known to many of us in the uh, publishing field. He is the former and I guess still the uh, current publisher of North Atlantic Books. No, no, former. Oh, is it former? Oh, okay. Thank you uh, for that. And, and I want to talk a little bit in the beginning of this program about a couple of books that he published, uh, and the, uh, very unusual, uh, people that are behind these books. So, uh, but I, I'll, we're, we're here today talking to Richard about a book he has just released called Dream Times and Thought Forms, Cosmogenesis from the Big Bang to Octopus and Crow Intelligence to UFOs fascinating book kind of a interesting brain dump on a lot of topics that he's personally interested in and uh, hey richard great to have you on destiny good to see you yeah thanks all right hey i want to jump uh, go a little bit behind or uh, in the past on a book that you wrote uh, excuse me that you published called the monuments of mars with richard hoagland and i'm just curious this new book Covers a great deal about alien intelligence, UFOs, things like that. What was the inspiration for publishing Hoagland's book? Because uh, I have it in my library. For many people, it's a it's a cult classic, simply because he gets into great detail on the whole potential of Mars being a former uh, planet that was populated. So, what what, what was the what was the uh, motivation for that?
3: Well, to just take it at that point and then work backwards, I I, I always credited Dick with um, what I thought was a fantastic form of science fiction. <laughs> oh, God. Writing, writing science as science fiction or writing yeah. science fiction as science, whichever it is. Yeah. I always thought that the monuments of Mars as a proposition was essentially brilliant science fiction, but Mm. based completely in science. He he built a science fiction story out of science, out of measurements, out of actual objects. Um, Do I think that those monuments are true or that it's there? I don't know. I mean, I once asked Dick if he believed it and he said every other Tuesday and Thursday. Oh so, boy.
1: I mean uh, it's uh Richard, I had to uh ask you this. Uh I mean he's got a lot of scientists on that. Uh that are reviewing. I uh John Brandenburg's a plasma physicist. oh uh, Mark Carlotto. Mark Carlotto.
3: Yeah. Well, there's nothing about being a scientist that qualifies or disqualifies you one way or the other. Yeah. On the Topic. I um. It, what interested me about that topic was never whether it was absolutely true or not, mm-hmm. as how brilli- brilliantly, as I said, it was constructed and based on he wrote everything based on something real. Yeah. And whether he construed it past the information available or not. Was really secondary to the fact that he um, that he stuck to his own rules in creating it, and that I don't know anybody else who's ever done that genre. Um, no, and he's maintained it over what um, forty? Is it forty years by now? Many decades.
1: Um, yeah, yeah.
3: Well, in answer to the, you did ask a question though, and the answer to the question is fairly straightforward. I had just written the fur the first version of the night sky a book uh, early earlier book of mine um, had come out with Sierra Club and I had addressed the um, whole range of topics I've rewrote the book twice again afterwards um, mm. but at that point a lot of topics were opened up and they included speculation about Mars, and then i I read an article about Dick in the San Francisco Chronicle in the Sunday Chronicle, and I got a hold of him. I guess I tracked down his address. He lived only a few blocks from me then. I lived in Berkeley. He lived in Oakland at that time. and I called him up and he said, "Drop by, I dropped by." and it turned out. That he had written this book, The Monuments of Mars, that I I think it was contracted by Prentice Hall and then Prentice Hall was bought by Simon and Schuster. I can't remember the details, but with the purchase, the book was dropped.
2: Oh, the amazing
3: reason that his new editor thought that astronauts had already been to Mars and that if there had been a face there, they would have seen it. (laughs) <laughs> and whether that's true or not, that's what he reported. And I thought, well, this is a fantastic book. I should publish it. And I think probably I shouldn't be gossipy enough to go into all the details that led to kind of recreating, editing, and publishing it. Um, but that's what happened over the next year or two. And... Um, And I was completely unprepared for the um, really across-the-board strong response to it.
1: I mean, the whole Cydonia region is still a huge question for a lot of people. And I'm curious, as a publisher... You you thought it was unique, obviously, to publish it in the late nineteen. I think it was published in nineteen ninety five. It came out.
3: No, no. Originally, I think it was in eighty six. Oh, 86. So, so
1: it, you, there were uh,
3: other editions, I guess. Uh, yeah, you know, second, a,
1: third printing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, when and when it first came out, how well was it received? Was it like a?
3: It a, it, it, <laughs> it hit the ground running. Pretty well, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. It changed the nature of our publishing. We had to hire an outside firm to cover all the phone calls every wow. time you went on the air. Uh, I, it's a little hard to remember. The eras have turned over so quickly, <laughs> um, but in that in that yeah. era, you you'd sign up that you could get this package. <laughs> I remember you paid this money, and depending on how much you paid, you got ten shows in various markets. And we never had the kind of money, I mean, it was like $50,000 to get Los Angeles, New York, or whatever. But we'd pay this much smaller sum and we'd get Utica and Oklahoma City, and um, these are all the contacts in these areas that well, uh, just radio stations. Oh, I hear you. Oh, radio, radio. So you get okay. these radio stations, right? And then Dick would go on, and it never failed that the phones would light up. But <laughs> we had like one phone in in, <laughs> in Berkeley, so we hired this firm. Yeah, took the phone calls and filled the orders and stuff. Wow. So it was, uh, it was uh, a lesson to us in, in publishing. And I, I, st- I guess you'd say I'm still friends with Dick now, although I don't have that, I don't connect with him that much
2: mm-hmm. in
3: the last few years, I've been on his uh, show, the other side of midnight, a bunch of times. Yeah. And in fact, um, this book dream times and thought forms towards the very end, I talk about him and his most recent views on the monuments of Mars. You might have noticed that.
1: I didn't get to that point, it! I have to go back and, and read that, but l- l- I'm interested, uh, Richard, in your perspective as a publisher to take on such a controversial subject as a civilization on Mars. I firmly believe that Mars was at one point uh, populated. Now, if you if you read from uh, John Brandenburg's book, Death on Mars, he believes that there was a Stone Age civilization that was perhaps a million years ago. But there's other people that believe that the monuments are more like 50,000 years old. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you think about that?
3: <laughs> hard well, to say, I guess. Since I'm the one who regards it as a, its own genre of science fiction – I think it's one story 50,000 years ago, another story 500,000 years ago, yeah. another story 500 million years ago. But you'll know if you track um, Dick closely, he has become more and more metaphysical as the years have passed. Yeah. And I was always more metaphysical than he was, more more psycho spiritually oriented. Right. And, um, I find that he is, he has arrived at a metaphysical perspective, um, by going through his sort of science framework. Whereas I arrived at a metaphysical perspective, somewhat incidental to science. Mm-hmm. And so when we've talked on his show, um, We've tried to find a point, Um and we've tussled and kind of kind of converged and tussled again and converged again. And at one point, and I wish I had looked if I'd known we were going to discuss this, I would have myself looked at my own book to see what I wrote on this. Um, I have
1: it. I'll, I'm going to go through it. I I, um, I got my
3: copy uh, just a couple of days
1: ago. But I um,
3: uh, yeah, it's in a section called bandwidth. okay um, and uh, he, in this course of our discussion, he said such interesting things that I asked his permission to just transcribe them off the uh, off the uh, um, the um, show, right And I put it uh, I put it in the book. Mm. Um, and I Again, I'm out of data. It's it's amazing how your own writing will become the writing of someone else quickly, and you have to say, "Oh, <laughs> okay, I'll I'll read that." In the in the previous podcast that I did, I've done two previously on this book, mm-hmm. and I both I and the interviewer were struck by the fact that this book is like a spell. It's a little hard to get into. But when you enter it, everything occurs within that spell, whether it's crows and octopuses or UFOs or my own stories. You touch on a lot of very, very interesting
1: things. Uh, let me so, just ask you.
3: Go finish, ahead. Finish your thought. No, well, OK. What was my thought? So um, within this spell, um, I I had the interview with Hoagland and I felt that um Well, I can't speak for, for me, I pushed him to something I had almost been waiting for 35 years for him to say, which was to take the whole argument about monuments of Mars a step deeper. And, um, and let's see, um, I don't know if you know any of this. Do you want me? Well, go ahead. You ask what you want. And then if if, if you're going to read, if you're going to read a quote from your book on
1: Hogan, go ahead. (laughs) Um, Because I want to hear about it because he is a fascinating figure.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And we also don't want to get landlocked on Hogan. No, no, Um, no, no. Let's see. Rich, uh, well, I wrote, Richard had extended his domain to allow messages from folks who had crossed from this incarnation to an afterworld. Mm-hmm. His late-in-life partner, homeopathic Dr. Robin Falcov, had died prematurely two and a half years earlier. Mm-hmm. And since then, mice in his house had been setting scraps of paper dust and other debris in configurations representing Sidonia and other aspects of his Martian and hyperdimensional modeling. After reminding me that his extraterrestrial pyramids mirrored and reverse mirrored actual Egyptian pyramids, Richard concluded uh, the mirroring records by whatever civilization was on Mars at the time, Mm. a transition between a state of existence where we were in another dimension and then flipped. We were, shall we say, mirror-reversed to where we are now in an artificial prison. And what we are experiencing is a deliberate artificial dimensional separation from the higher dimensionality that we used to occupy and freely migrate between. Um, wow. And this well, goes on for, I quote him extensively. This goes I'll have on, to go and find that, Richard. um goes on for two pages. Okay, yeah. And dream, I, dream. Ha- afterwards, I say, Hoagland's oft misunderstood vision sees through many glasses darkly. It starts with NASA photographed artifacts on Sol 4 and proceeds through transdimensional geometry and cosmic conspiracies to the gateway of dark matter and dark knowledge. Mm. It is as if we exist at the surface of our own dimensional depth, while the paradigm or bubble that holds us is dissolving, and a greater sun is rising from the dark ages of camouflage civilization to reveal an amphitheater in which a gladiatorial sideshow has been taking place. Wow. And that's a big transition for Hoagland. He's no longer, and he would probably deny this, but from my view, he's no longer saying the monuments on Mars represent another civilization in uh, Carl Sagan's cosmos. He's saying that we're in a hyperdimensional or transdimensional cosmos, and the monuments of Mars Represent this hyperdimensional civilization, yeah. And, it,
1: yeah, it's it, it's uh, now this is a meta, it's a meta, it becomes a metaphysical question, mm-hmm. which is fascinating that you're posing that. And that he, in his relationship with his wife, who was actually an active metaphysician, mm-hmm. he and her passing, which was devastating for him and for, for her friends, uh, uh shifting him. And I'm I've gotten to the point where I'm thinking there is multiple realities at play here, and we can
3: talk about this a little bit later. Well, but that's why this book that we're talking about is called Dream Times and Thought Forms.
1: Yeah, and and you you actually uh, pick up the mantle quite a bit in your book with your interest in UFOs. Now, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you because you in the very beginning you bring up uh, the research of Dr. A.V. Loeb, who we've had on the show quite a bit, the omao uh probe mm-hmm. that he is still looking at and also has followed up with another probe that he believes landed in the Pacific Ocean and, and fragmented. Um, why do we have so many, so many problems with UFOs? Is it because we can't explain them and understand their propulsion systems or... Is it the fact that these beings who are in these craft are so in advance, maybe a million years in advance of us, who maybe, who possibly are using technology to go forward and backward in time?
3: Well, I'm never an answer giver. I'm I'm somebody who poses possibilities, Uh and at this moment, what I think, which is roughly what I put out in the book that um, that realities are created by collective consciousnesses and that there is no ultimate reality, hard, you know, reality in the universe. That um, And that's why in an earlier book I wrote about this, that Inner Traditions did, Bottoming Out the Universe, the prior book I wrote about this, the, the reality that we're in is, is very, um, is not solid. I mean, when you look at it, it's only energy and curvature. Right. And it's, if if this were a dream, it would come out pretty much the same if this were a dream time, a literal dream time. So how is this reality being created? I don't question that it's created in exactly the way physicists say it was created, but I don't think that that creation is as such um, a purely physical accident that happened, to quote Terence McKenna, ironically, in the middle of nowhere for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's a, uh, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, I call it a collective thought form. But it's not created by a few gods or a few individuals. It is literally the collective projection of everybody who's in this thought form. And that makes it very stable. And it's hard for any given individual to change it. I just parenthetically finished watching um, the Netflix serial, The Sandman, last night. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: I haven't I haven't it's on my to-do list I haven't had a chance to but see it yet.
3: that that rather um um with amazing kind of depth recreates this sense in this case the reality becomes a dream created by the sandman in mm-hmm. which we participate as dreamers um, and yet the sandman only exists because we dream him so mm-hmm. the realities are codependent each reality exists because the other reality exists, and yet they bring each other into being together, which is why I also use the phrase um, "dream time," the uh, borrowing the Australian Aborigine notion of a landscape which is sung into existence by the dreamers who are dreaming it. Mm-hmm. Landscape and, dream- and dreamer come into being simultaneously, and for me. In my own inquiry, which goes all the way back to childhood um, and the explorations of a child, um, the, uh, I had a, a real departure around 2008 when I t- studied for a year and a half at the Berkeley Psychic Institute when I oh, still yeah out, out there where you are. Yeah. And I was introduced to a psychic view of reality. And then after deciding not to continue there because it was too much of a cult as well as an institute, I took up studying with one of its earliest um, students, John Friedlander. Oh, yeah. Uh, who subsequently sat with Jane Roberts during a lot of her Seth channeling?
1: Yeah, we had John on the show talking about Seth. He had he just finished a book a year ago on his. Yeah, uh...
3: I'm the one who put that book together. That's, oh, John. Okay, that's my biggest by my own bar. That's my biggest achievement in publishing is John's book, um, <laughs> recentering Seth. Exactly, because it took me, I estimate, something like 2,000 hours to do. Um, wow. I went through 10 or 12 years of his classes and transcribed the portions of them that I thought related to the Seth teaching. Mm. And I put them together in a book. So you could say you could go from Hoagland to Freeland or from from Mars to Seth, um, which is also like going into, into the universe.
1: You ask a lot of specific questions in this new book though richard and and one I'm curious about is people like McKenna and Graham Hancock and other authors who have done ayahuasca report meeting with alien beings during their trips, if you want to call them their trips and, and you have to wonder, is there shift that this plant makes this consciousness shift into a other dimensions or other realities we don't actually know where it is where they're able to communicate with these so-called off-world beings is this something that you believe an advanced race naturally does is shift their awareness and be able to communicate with others
3: well give it if it's a yes or no question yes Well, I I
1: don't know. I mean, uh, what's your um, feeling? It's the
3: same question as the question about UFOs, which is, where are they being generated? Are they being generated as a physical phenomenon in a universe described by physicists? Or are they being generated as a kind of phenomenology out of the collective consciousness of individuals? Mm -hmm. And... Um, and you can throw in plants uh, to that if you want. Um, and and one of the reasons I include octopuses and crows in this book is I'm interested if you change the um, the the brain and the nervous system and put them in a different creature, what what's the universe that they see and what do they tell us about the universe? Yeah. Uh, and though, you know I've done, Over the years, I followed a path and did numerous books. I I first, after doing a lot of experimental prose books in the early, earlier years, I did planet medicine on healing, then the night sky on astronomy, cosmology, Mm -hmm. then embryogenesis and embryos, galaxies and sentient beings about how we get bodies. And then, finally, shift it to consciousness, and then embrace the other topics mm-hmm. and that's a lot what i've uh, been working working with lately is how these various topics converge in the topic of consciousness mm-hmm. and in my it's really been a privilege to work with inner traditions where I can discover and help either just acquire or work editorially with authors on um, creating new models Mm -hmm. of consciousness and getting into this particular topic the way I see it at this moment, I've been working with um, a new author, a young woman, interestingly born in Kiev in Ukraine, um, who... um, who worked, uh, a woman named uh, Rue Rabinikova, who worked um, originally, she was trained in science and worked in pharmaceuticals for seven years. And since then, maybe, I I don't remember whether it's five or six years since then, she's been developing um, sort of messaging systems and consciousness-raising systems based on treating DNA and RNA, not just as um, as the molecular basis of heredity in life, but as actual uh, portals into the etheric universe hmm. in which we connect with the previous world. So it's not like DNA created us. It's like it passed our etheric selves through the portal into this world. So is she
1: working with uh meditative practices that connect with like the Akashic records or or what?
3: Well, a lot of different things. Um she um I I'm in the years not only working the two years I worked with inner traditions, and the longer period when I've been doing this uh weekly psychic group, I've noticed how many young people um no matter their backgrounds come in um with a, a almost an innate knowledge of sound healing of uh, communicating with spirits of um animal guidance mm-hmm. and she brings all of that together wow and and in the way that Hoagland and John Friedlander have been editorial projects of mine, she's an editorial project of mine at the moment and when that book eventually comes out i'll pass her on to you
1: sounds like somebody we definitely want to have on the show let's talk about this uh, this book you did reference um, octopus and crows you highlight the intelligent of uh, of the species of of octopus what and this has been coming up a lot lately some people are saying that the octopus is a, is an alien on earth what why were they speculate that and what is your Personal interest in them?
3: Well, it's a good segue from the DNA topic because um, it took me a long time to understand what was obvious, which is that octopuses are invertebrates. And we don't generally think of consciousness evolving in invertebrates, or if we do, we think of the hive consciousness of bees or ants. But Octopuses are independently thinking invertebrates who are related to oysters. We may be related to monkeys, they're related to oysters. And there's been speculation by people who understand the genetics better than I do that, um, that amino acids traveling through the universe or perhaps, you know, like these objects we discussed earlier could have dropped some DNA some uh, some um, alleles chains into the ocean and those combines with an oyster yeah and it com- got much in the way that the microbiome provides uh, DNA to us which is another topic in that book right. out of covid um and um and that that the oyster, may have evolved terrestrially, the octopus may have evolved terrestrially, but it got it got some outside intelligence. And again, this is, I guess you could call it science speculation, like the monuments on Mars. Hmm. It's not science fiction, it's speculation based on science.
1: We're going to take a short commercial break, and we will be right back with today's author, Richard Grossinger. My guest today is the author and former publisher of North Atlantic Books, Richard Grossinger. His new book, Dream Times and Thought Forms, covers a great deal of information on reaching out to other levels of consciousness, be it earthbound or extraterrestrial. What is it about them, though, octopus, that uh, you find, uh, I mean, I, I haven't studied them. I've read very little on how they're understanding their their intelligence, uh, but I don't get where. I mean, they're unusual creatures, obviously, but I don't get where they are out of uh, uh, their ability to communicate. Their intelligence level is anything special? What makes them so special?
3: Well, they solve problems that really I mean, they can be locked in cages and they figure out how to get out of them. In fact, if I remember right, there's experiments in which they put food, I forget what particular clams or whatever, in these cages, and they're supposed to go in and get trapped. Oh. And they happily go in and sit and eat the food knowing that they can leave at any time. <laughs> and um, perhaps most fascinating it's not intelligence in a cerebral sense, but then again, they have eight brains um, the, um, that are operating somewhat independently. As as one friend said, they're great multitaskers. Um, they, um, they have all these, um, um, essentially, what do you call them? They, they have, I, I can't remember the language, which I knew when I wrote the book, they have layers of skin that change shape and color such that they can mimic pr- pretty much anything so they Yeah camouflage. you mentioned you
1: did, you mentioned that in the book their the camouflage ability yeah. to blend and in if
3: and if you give them the ocean floor they'll camouflage with whatever is there yeah um, a great variety of things they'll camouflage as a fish they'll camouflage as like a plant or just a rock. Mm -hmm. And if in an experiment, a scientist comes in and puts a Picasso painting, a represent a replica of a Picasso painting underneath, they'll turn into the painting more or less as best they can. Wow. So that's, that's quite interesting. Hmm. As, as a capacity of a living system,
1: is it because they're so radically different than any other animal or uh species that we know about that people are like well they're not originally from Earth, they're part of a as you suggest part of a panspermia mm-hmm.
3: uh, uh, you know I guess I mean they could also be special and from earth, so oh, yeah, I mean we're from Earth or maybe we're not." <laughs> Weird. Um,
1: I'm really fascinated in your uh, work. In you actually um, have a redefinition. Now you you uh, uh, reference uh, Alan Hynek, J. Alan Hynek, his three categories for uh, UFO encounters, uh, and he he gets into the the unusual technology, and number one, number two, the landing fields, and then number three, the close encounters. Of the third of the thir- uh, third kind, which Spielberg went on to make into a, a quite a, a important movie, I think that influenced everybody. <laughs> I can't think of, but you recategorize uh, UFOs. Talk a little bit about these. Uh, uh, I think uh, the first one is uh, that they should be thought of as interstellar vehicles. Uh, but, but I'm curious about your redefinition of of well, them,
3: I make a really long list of possibilities. Yeah, once you expand the universe to include consciousness, and um, the the um, it's occurring to me what's crossing my mind is I watched um, that Netflix uh, Skimwalker Ranch. Um, oh,
1: yeah, I saw that series. too.
3: Yeah. Uh, as you watch people try and interact with those. And I I won't get it there, that would be a rabbit hole to get into of its own. But um I I think I think that all of the inquiries into UFOs have run into the same problem that that any definite they don't yield to any definition. And you can't turn them into hallucinations because they register on radar and leave debris, um, and yet you can't pin them down because they never um, they never present themselves for scientific examination in any explicit sense, and you so you end up with this fundamental problem in definition of of what they are, and my own. My own sense that I come they come down to is that they are like the ultimate borderline phenomenon between this reality and another reality, or perhaps between um, the between thought forms um, as as thought and thought forms as form, and as and and I and. Because I'm working as here as an ed- editor with um with Keith Thompson, who wrote Alien Angels and Aliens a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and he's kind of like the front man on this. He's ahead, sort of researching all of it. And he keeps telling me there's no way there's no way to pin down the phenomenon, no matter what people tell you. Um, it can't be pinned down to anything. Well, in truth, nothing that we experience can be pinned down. Um, um, it, it's just that we have have our constructs that we pin things down to. Mm-hmm. And that's why after doing all these books, the sequence I've done just with inner traditions, bottoming out the universe, followed by dream times and thought forms, is an attempt to kind of bring it down to fundamental questions of what is this reality? How might it have arisen? And um, in this book, Dream Times and Thought Forms, one of the most meaningful parts to me comes out of my dialogue with a friend and also a publisher, Matt McKay of uh, New Harbinger, mm-hmm. who um, raised the issue of the the buddhist view of non-duality whereby this reality is seen as particularly illusional and um and it's a reality to get out of which as you might know from talking to john friedlander is distinctly opposite of what seth said yeah um, which is that this reality is meant to be inhabited but Matt um Matt, who started off as an evidence based psychotherapist, um, ultimately, after the murder of his son, I think about fifteen years ago in San francisco, um, and his subsequent contact with his son's um kind of oversoul or I've had Matt on many times, and josh oh, yeah. josh Josh comes through on a
1: regular basis, Joshua, his son.
3: Um, uh, what's his son's name? I thought it was Jordan. Josh.
1: Jordan. Jordan, thank you, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. What's the book I, titled? Uh something. His Jordan.
3: original New World Library book was "Seeking Jordan." Seeking Jordan. Yeah. And then I've done two books with them with Inner Traditions: "The Luminous Landscape of the Afterlife," right? And um, and I, I and um, love in a time of impermanence. I mean. You know, and he's, and he's just doing a new Jordan book right now. I mean,
1: Jordan's saying that Earth is uh, is like many other uh, wisdom seekers and wisdom traditionalists that Earth is a college of some kind. It's a place where you kind of play out the script that you come into physicality with.
3: Yeah, the that um, that you come here like John Friedlander says, well, why do angels want to come here when it's so much more fun being an angel? It's because there's not enough resistance. And boy, is there ever a lot of resistance here. Mm -hmm. Um, this This is a place where it's very, very hard to make progress, and everything you do has an impact and generates karma. So you're always working with that. And if you've been an angel long enough, and you can just take this as a parable if you want, um, if you've been an angel long enough, you actually need resistance in order to progress. And this is the place where this is a place for progressing, um, for (laughs) encountering resistance, for learning the consequences of your actions and seeing what they lead to, and for having, uh, for having results that you that are not your choice, and yet having to deal with them.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Having results that are not your choice. And that's one of the things that Seth brings up quite a bit is that you create your reality. And that's very challenging for people that are
3: subtle, because you create it, but you don't control it.
1: Which is a real problem really? right there yeah. yeah
3: you you're always creating a reality but your attempt to control it um gets you in big trouble in fact that's where the lessons often come from mm-hmm. is you try to control the reality and you run into your limitations and the limitations of the system and the limitations of your own development
1: uh on the topic of UFOs and the alien, uh, uh, occupants, why would the U.S. Space Command? This is a good question for you. Rebrand UFOs to UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon. It's almost <laughs> like, it's almost like they're afraid to define the beings who are controlling these craft. It's like
3: they don't want to. that they want to restart the dialogue under a new name. Um, I don't know if they're afraid. Um, uh, some might be, others not. Uh, you get all different attitudes depending on all different levels of developments, and I try and track that in that chapter. Um, I I think it's more that we are not approaching it by the right system. Um, I, um, I in, in bottoming out the universe, I write at some length about a conference I participated in in 2019 at MIT, which surprised me that um, the conference was about interstellar travel. And given that it was at MIT, It was during January, so it was a month when they had special programs. And the idea of this program was to pin down how um, spaceships traveled in order, because basically, given the size of the universe, nothing could get here in enough time for a life form to survive. Um, So if UFOs are coming from other solar systems, there's got to be a trick we don't know about. There's got to be another propulsion system. So most of the conference, which ran for a month, was about propulsion systems and complex quantum physical systems and things that I briefly studied and learned about and could dialogue on but have since forgotten. (laughs) But my point was, what I brought to that conference was the notion that it's where and who we are that determines how far we can go and whether we can travel. And that we may be bound as much by our belief system and by our morality as we are by physical constraints and that um, beings who arrive in forms that appear that are UFOs that, that look to us like that um, are not bounds by the same belief systems or phenomenologies. So they're driven not by fancier engines. They're driven by the fact that that their belief system at a core level, at a profound core level so deep that we can't even imagine how you shift to that level, that's allowing them to, as Seth put it, travel inside of the universe rather than on on the shell, and that we're trapped in a camouflage universe, and we travel across its shell. Um, Yeah. I mean, which creates enormous distances beyond our lifespan.
1: Yeah. Light year travel. And if we don't know about the propulsion, I there's a NASA astronomer we've had on the show who has what he believes witnessed portals and he witnessed a, a ship coming out of what he thought was a portal in Temecula, California, which is down by San Diego. And he's writing a second book. We're going to have him on later in the year. But uh, my feeling, and I'm, I want your take on this, is when we have an official acknowledgement that a race from another planetary system has arrived and they like to have some kind of a dialogue, my belief is that we as a species immediately evolve and we evolve because number 1 we understand we're not the only ones in our universe number 2 religions take a beating on this because we're told certain uh things about being a religious person that are not what our ancestors or what the great seers of the ancient past have brought forward
3: but i'm curious what is well, I think your- it's our, i think that this happens anyway Ta- talk because about this as we confront um as we confront the nature of our own intelligence and and try to work through to a definition of who we are, all of these categories fall apart. And in a certain sense, we're already meeting those other intelligences. We're already in contact with them. In um, what way? By because but we just. Can... Uh, Unconsciously, and oh by gosh, and by the kind of what John calls multi-personhood, that um, that sort of brings together the entire universe um, in sort of um, single thought forms that um, we engage with. So, I'm I I think that there's no point in frustrating ourselves or disappointing ourselves with the contact that doesn't happen. We're better off uh, addressing the fact that we are in contact and trying to see what that feels like and why we're in a sense repressing it. Well, define what you mean by, by we are in contact. Well, what, what uh- it's, it seeps into our actions into our personalities and so by
1: vi- by visual- by seeing these ships in the sky, you're saying that somehow this is enough for us to be uh, triggered into understanding that we're not the only ones in our cosmos.
3: Well, that's a part of it, but I don't even think we have to see the ships. Mm-hmm. We um, we are experiencing radical consciousness all the time in in the in the, in the bu- this particular book of mine that we're talking about i refer to it as bardo realms um somewhat as a convenient terminology and propose that many times a day and certainly when we go to sleep we shift bardos mm-hmm. we um and that we shift from one phase of knowledge and consciousness to another mm-hmm.
1: So what do you think um some of the ancient traditions have to how how it plays into this uh new reality of of uh, alien uh, flying ship where does meditation and uh contemplation and some of these ancient uh techniques that are coming back into play uh how how do they play into the, into the whole ufo thing
3: well, that's a that's a link that you have to make um, using one or another of these um, kind of ideas I've been talking about, um, which is that um, that the that um, that there is, I guess I would call it like the interior UFO. You ha- you have to you have to identify. The forms that are passing through your own universe on a daily basis, and realize, and and kind of make contact through those.
1: It's interesting. Uh, one of the things I find curious, and and uh, I'm curious about also your take on it, is you can't use the. And you you alluded to this earlier. You can't use the scientific method that our scientific paradigm is built on to analyze UFOs. Because not only are they we, we dealing with exotic propulsion systems, we may be dealing with beings that are so far in advance of, of us, they can automatically create their reality. They can
3: automatically... Right, they may not be propulsion systems at all.
1: Yeah, they, they might be using thought form to, to move between dimensions that we're not familiar with. But how do we, how do we approach that? as a you know a three dimensional being
3: um the way we do anything else um we um we dead reckon it from where we are we uh we go from we go simply from where we are towards the phenomenon and we try not to ask um how how to say it without sounding pejorative we try not to ask banal questions we try and ask good questions. Mm. I think that over-focusing on, on the science fiction way, on other worlds, ultimately generates banal questions um, that we're better than, we can generate better questions. It's It's been, um, going back to Hoagland, it's been part of my long-time debate with him is I've often wanted to push him to ask what to me would be more interesting questions. Um, and I I think that uh, I have a lot of respect for the force of his will and intelligence, the force of his own um, inquiry that has, that it's gotten more and more metaphysical as it's gone along. And, that's kind of why I jumped on it in this book. It was a chance to um, to um, discuss this. And at the very end of the book, I talk about a number of people who are highly materialistic in their worldview who have had a radical encounter of some sort that has shifted um, um, their view. And having mice start building your own project, start putting together the symbols from Sidonia in your household, is going to change your view of reality. Yeah, um, and um, I, um, I, it, we live in both Bar Harbor and Portland and in our Portland house, which is not where I am now, across the street is a retired police detective who was actually chief of detectives, who absolutely is, is hardcore materialist in his view. And yet, um, he received, he told me, and it took a lot for him to admit this to me, um, that he received a phone call from his wife, essentially after she died. And had, and I almost make that the last event in my book, um, that it just was, chilling to me and also very ins- inspirational that um how did he approach it he didn't it approached him mm. the phone rang he answered it uh, i mean yeah it could have been a hallucination everything could be a hallucination he answered it it rang he he couldn't believe it um and then as he added up the pieces, he, he realized that was the only explanation. And uh, it had changed his worldview.
0: Hmm.
1: That's a profound event. Uh, hmm. The book we're talking about is Dream Times and Thought Forms, Cosmogenesis, from the Big Bang to Octopus and Crow Intelligence to UFOs. My guest is Richard uh, Rossinger. As we come to the end of our time together, what, uh, I, I'm just curious, you, you studied a lot of the, these, uh, Eastern philosophies. Do you think that that, mi- that mindset plays itself much better when we're dealing with, uh, intelligences that are not from our, uh, our planet? Do you think that it's a better way to go and more, <laughs> more, uh, malleable than trying to work with education? systems that are in many ways outdated and I'm talking about
3: that's a yes and a no yes insofar as those systems are open to for lack of another term are called divine states of being um and um, spirits and Mm -hmm. god forms and entities traveling in other shapes than human Um, but no, in so far as the Western tradition, and especially the Western esoteric tradition, focuses on this particular reality and how forms manifest in this reality, and I emphasize that that's a big part of my book. I kind of right. lost the thread with Matt McKay back there, but that's a discussion he and I have been having now for a couple of years. Is how, how do you account for this reality if you don't want to fall into the notion that it's a lesser reality or a mistake or, you know, a bad place to end up? And if you're lucky, you can get enlightened out of here. Um, I would say that if you're going to resolve UFOs, you're not going to resolve them in a God world you're going to resolve them in this world because that's where they're appearing. And if they're um, if they're links or portals to a god world, then those worlds will have to redefine each other in terms of each other.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. How can people uh, get a hold of you? You got a website? that people can go I to I do um give them the URL on that so they can It's just
3: my name www.richardkrosinger.com okay I um in April I updated it with um with some news notes okay. that I think are are particularly telling about from you know uh in the ego sends me how I got to here I kind of measure out my life in ten-year blocks, like from <laughs> one to ten, ten to twenty, twenty to thirty, et cetera. This is a blog that you've written. That in no, the- it's just the it's just the homepage. Oh, the homepage. Okay. Uh, and it, I put news notes on it, and I I have found that in the last ten years, um, having been fortunate enough to get those years because not all of my friends got, got to get older years Yeah. that I have had such radical shifts of perspective. And this book dream times and thought forms is a lot about that because I went through a particularly dark period from, uh, from uh, June of 2018 until October of 2020 during which I call it the abyss. I traveled through this underworld all the time. It's not like it was a minor depression. It was a major underworld journey. Um, And yes, three members of my family committed suicide, my mother, brother, and sister. Oh my Um, God, Richard, I'm sorry. But um, I always felt as though I was on a different path. And I do think I'm on a different path, but I'm dealing with the same programming as they were. And the journey through the underworld allowed me to be taught by the shadows that they faced and to come out in a in a better place, um, wow. a more informed place. And that's what I tried to write about on the homepage. And in the part of this book, um, in which I write about practices... And when I went into that um, that sort of abyss, I still was working at the press that Lindy, my wife, and I founded. I was living in, in Portland, Maine mostly, but going back to the Bay Area. And at the end of it, um, I was no longer affiliated in any way with North Atlantic Books. Um, and the break was very, very negative and 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 um, violent. And I ended up living in Bar Harbor and working for a publisher that um, can really make use of the resources that I've developed over the years. So, in just um, in just two plus years, I brought in about a hundred books there, and. I've um, learned as much from these authors, especially young authors, authors in their 20s and 30s, Mm. um, authors who are young enough to be my kids' kids in some cases. Um, uh, And that's in a world which is a mess in its physical manifestation anyway. I've seen such immense hope in them. And such radical new paradigms in addressing reality. So I mentioned one of them, but I think about um, dragon energies and various forms of lucid dreaming and other mm. things that, um, that I've learned from my authors, my, wow. my new my new cluster of authors. I never set out to be a publisher. I thought I was going to teach college. That's why I got a PhD in anthropology. But <laughs> that lasted 7 years and then we moved to Berkeley and the publishing company took off and uh, and so I didn't go I didn't try to go back and teach college. But I'm almost doing that now in a, in a very special way with these authors.
1: I think it's great that you uh, can uh, find Uh, and track down and and, uh, nurture new writers because there's a, this is a whole different genre, this field that, that you represent. And a lot of the big guys like Simon and Schuster, whoever's left out there, they just won't touch it. And and it's unfortunate because. Well, they
3: would if they thought it would make money. Well, that's the bottom line for them. They don't don't know which of it will make money and which of it won't. Yeah. It's what Ahud, the publisher of Inner Traditions, calls the knitting. He says we <laughs> want to stay within the knitting. Yeah. And my job has been to try and convince him to stretch the knitting a little bit in different directions, because I'm more um, I'm more literarily oriented than he than they are.
1: Well, I, I have told- to just say this: that they published my first book on cannabis,
3: uh-huh. and
1: I think that they. Their work on plant medicines is excellent. They have a whole I think they're the biggest publisher of plant medicine uh yeah. t- titles. They're the,
3: really the biggest publisher of esoteric books. I yeah. I didn't know what the count was. Ahud said they had just hit two thousand books.
1: It must yeah. be up in the high range uh, of yeah. uh of publishing. Yeah. So Richard, the pleasure as always, and we'll thank have to you. have you back. And uh thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. I want to mention that in that interview, there was a few books that you should consider. One is Richard Hoagland's The Monuments of Mars. It's very well uh, researched and includes a lot of very, very good data. Although it's about 25 years old, there's a, a good deal of photography taken uh, by the orbiting satellites of Mars that should be in people's collections in your, in your resource area. So, I mean, you can get a used copy of the book now for, you know, maybe six, seven bucks U.S., or you can get a new one. That book's available on Amazon. Just a fascinating look at Mars, and one of the great books that triggered my interest in the possibilities of a civilization, a long-dead civilization, uh, populating the planet, so... That's the first one. And then the other book I was thinking about that we were talking on Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna, which is the invisible landscape uh, that um, Richard was referring to. And that book talks about the mushrooms, the psilocybin, the connection uh, to uh, other consciousnesses through that plant medicine How to use them? I think there's even a section on how to grow them, which is uh, some people are doing. So those are a a couple of good references from that interview. I was thinking the other day it would probably be smart if I had a list of books. I, for many, for a few years, I was posting books of note that you could collect and add to your um, uh, your library. But I stopped doing that because uh, people are less inclined now to buy a book, whereas you can get the audible version or you can get a digital version and have that available to take with you anywhere. And that may be the future is that you, rather than you buy a hard copy, you have a, a digital version of the book in your uh, virtual library that you can access without problem. You know, you take a Wherever the cloud is available, wherever the internet is available, you just open up your uh, library, and there you go. Uh, that that uh, seems like the the future. My problem is that I love to fill the book. I get books every week uh, that to, to review, and uh, I I like keeping a lot of books. I give a lot of books away. Uh, we have a university close by, and I uh, give them to students. But you know uh, that may be a thing of the past. Collecting hard copies, you know, I gotta if I gotta go anywhere, if I move, I gotta drag all my books with me. So the digital version uh, is uh, is the future. So I need to I need to be grinding down. So I need to I need to be considering that rather than the hard copy. So anyhow, that's something to think about. Hey, I want to mention that we are planning our 2023 tour schedule. We currently have the Grand Egyptian Tour scheduled for May 2nd through the 14th, 2023. That is uh, not to be missed. It's deeply, deeply discounted. You can see the entire itinerary at earthancients.com forward slash tours. We're giving away uh, an additional discount if you want to register Use the code G O E 200 and you'll get an additional few hundred dollars off the registration fee. And every little bit helps, uh, but we're, I mean, we have made this tour probably around 40% less than what most of these tours are several thousands of dollars. uh, But our tour is very, very reasonable. Uh, Again, this is not to be missed, Uh, it's the Grand Addition Tour earthancients.com forward slash tours we just got the uh, uh, itinerary from dr edwin barnard for our mexico tour looks very good this is more of a short one two three tour seven days we get in we're going to see some amazing uh sites you can also see the itinerary for that on earthancients.com forward slash tours both of those tours are solid we may have a third tour in 2023, uh, which will be Turkey. There's some problems in Turkey right now that we're trying to look through and, and make sure it's, it's a viable place to visit. And we'll be announcing that probably before the end of the year. So anyhow, we do great tours. It is a lot of fun. They're very reasonably, reasonably priced. And again, you can see the itinerary on the website, earthancients.com forward slash tours come out and join us all right that's it for today i want to thank my guest today richard grossinger talking about on his book dream times and thought forms as always our team of ruth thomas mark foster and everyone who makes the engine go thank you thank you thank you i appreciate your help all right take care be well and we will talk to you next time